Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. It's all because of this conditioning. And it's all because of the lack of the skill and the orientation of not knowing. Well, I feel like I'm responsible most of the time, but my boss is telling me this thing I did wasn't responsible. Okay, guess there's something for me to learn here. I wonder what I'm missing. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. In the last episode, I discussed how our schools and society condition us to put a premium on knowing. Our identity forms around what we think we know about the world and ourselves, and we're afraid to reveal when we don't know. It feels antithetical to our very being. As a result, it becomes uncomfortable to sit and face the truth of not knowing. And most of us are never trained how or why to not know, so we just continue to avoid it. In this episode, I'm going to show you what happens when you start undoing some of that conditioning from your childhood and sitting in the discomfort of not knowing. I offer weekly member webcasts, online courses, and mentorship at clearandopen.com because it's my truth that with the right tools, anyone can eliminate the people, money, and time problems holding them back in business. And I share parts of these webcasts and courses on this show because I want to help you too. In fact, this series comes directly from the introduction to the course entitled Managing with Inquiry that's free for Clear and Open members. If you're enjoying the show and learning from it, I'd love your feedback. If you're listening to the show on an Apple device, all you have to do is open the podcast app, view the full description of this episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review for the show. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. So I have the lofty goal in this course of undoing some of that. And, and that's the challenge, of course, because all of our, um, in, you know, it depends on the paradigm you use, but in, in Buddhism, they would call it our ego minds, or, or for short, just the ego. The, for the ego, for the, that this concretized identity, knowing is better than not knowing. And when you lose or are faced with the prospect of losing, a belief, an assumption you have about the world, about people, and most of all, yourself, that can get really scary for the ego to not know something about you. You may think, for example, that you're an incredibly responsible person all of the time. You may think, for example, that you're not overwhelmed. You may think, for example, that you're great with people. You may think, for example, that you have honor, integrity, that you're honest, that you don't make excuses. And I can show you moments, and maybe will during this course, where that's not happening. That doesn't mean you're not a responsible person or an honest person or whatever, because there's no such thing as a responsible or honest or high-integrity person. Because you're only as whatever that is, you're only as honest or integrity or hardworking or whatever, as in this very moment, right? Certainly you could, you know, look over a period of time and make an assessment, but we're all not honest sometimes. Maybe you're honest with other people often, or 
you know, rigorously, but not honest with yourself. We all falter in these ways. But in, instead of looking moment to moment and saying, okay, well, I was honest in this moment and honest in this next moment. Oh, in that moment, I wasn't so honest. And this moment, instead of looking at it that way, we want to put this clothing on and saying, well, I'm an honest person because honesty is good. And even more, I love this feeling of knowing who I am. And I get to sort of put honest or responsible or honorable or whatever, like a badge on me, like it's this permanent state of being. But is it really? You know, whatever qualities you would use to describe yourself, are they always true? Are they actually solid in that way? Of course not. Now, you may be honest 99% of the time. Terrific. But how does it actually serve you to have that idea, that self-image? Right? Does that really help? Because in the moments like, I mean, how often do you experience when someone says, hey, you weren't honest with me? And your knee-jerk reaction is, are you calling me a liar? Right? I always tell the truth, right? It, it collides with your self-image and distorts your ability to look at that moment. Whereas you, know, may, you may have been completely honest for the last hundred days, but in that one moment you weren't. And that's the moment that matters right now, especially to the other person. But if, you're, have, if you have a grip on the self-image of you are a certain way, and I know you've all experienced this with someone else, right? You call them on some of their BS, and they are so busy telling you about all the things that they believe about themselves that they can't admit the new information. So how does that actually help? Right? How does it actually help? But we're taught that self-esteem means seeing yourself in a really good light. Okay. But what if it's not true? Is it still self-esteem to look at yourself in a good light? To think of yourself as a highly responsible person or a highly competent person in your job? To feel good about that everywhere in your life if it's not true in some of those areas? Right. So this is another part of the conditioning that keeps us locked into knowing this idea that self-esteem means feeling good about yourself. What if self-esteem actually were looking really at yourself and being able to look at the good and the bad and see it all as one acceptable picture and feeling good about that? Right. There's this meta good place beyond good and bad, a place of compassion. Well, I'm uh, highly creative, and that creativity sometimes makes me really disorganized and scattered. Both are true. Well, I'm uh, incredibly competent, and sometimes I'm controlling and micromanaging. Both are true. I've got a really clever mind, and I'm really quick thinking, and sometimes I make excuses so fast I don't even see them. Both are true. Why is it that we have this extraordinary need to only focus on the good or what we perceive as good? Why do we grip that? It's all because of this conditioning. And it's all because of the lack of the skill and the orientation of not knowing. Well, I feel like I'm responsible most of the time, but my boss is telling me this thing I did wasn't responsible. Okay, guess there's something for me to learn here. I wonder what I'm missing. That's a question you can't ask too much. I wonder what I'm missing. 
that's a skill of not knowing, especially when someone is trying to tell you what you're missing. That's a good time to be going, I wonder what I'm missing, rather than let me tell you all about what I know about me and how I've always been, which is what the ego does in response. Okay, I've been talking for a while. Any questions, comments? Anybody want to say anything? I will say that uh, recently I noticed, uh, I can recall within the last two or three days, uh, my wife asked me a question. It might have been a rhetorical question. It might have, who knows what it was about. But I remember the feeling of struggling for an answer and realizing I didn't know and uh, the difficulty with which I said the words, I don't know. I, I think I had a desire to, I, I think in these situations, it's certainly happened many times in the past where I've been in that situation. I, I think I have a desire to to think about something and come up with a, what I think is a logical or plausible answer or come up with an answer that I that my biases would point to as being true. And rarely, I think, do I, do I understand and come to grips with the, the, the truth that I don't know. Mm. But I have said, you know, sometimes, well, I don't know. But I, what you're suggesting here and, and me thinking back through it, I, I can see that that is, like you said, it's a, it's, it's, it's a skill and a, and a capacity that we don't have in very, very great quantity. Yeah. So, and um, oh, that, that's just been my experience. Go back to that moment, or maybe even right now. Thanks, thanks for this, Peter. This is really helpful. What's the feeling in your body of not knowing? And well, everybody can ask this. There's a certain discomfort that's hard for me to say what the feeling in my body is, but I suspect that it's something that I would probably feel in my torso, my chest, or my stomach somewhere mm-hmm. of there's a conflict or discomfort because I, I want to know or I want to answer, but the, the, the honest truth is that I don't. So I, I, I think it's some sort of a, um, a feeling of tightness. There's, there's or, a conflict there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's a good thing to notice when there's a conflict between I should know or I want to know and I don't know. That's on the way to not knowing. Because not knowing is actually a... You know, at, at sort of, it's you could call it a process. Not knowing. I mean, it's, it's a gerund. It's a verb, after all. The process of not knowing actually delivers you to, if you follow it long enough, to a very relaxed and open state. But oftentimes, along the way, there's this tightness, there's this fear and anxiety, because, and it's usually sourced in "I should know." Mm-hmm. Right? We definitely didn't see anyone in our high school classrooms relaxed, open, and teacher says, you know, so what's the answer? You know, I don't know. Right? You wouldn't see that. The I don't know you would see would be tight and like the head down like someone's about to hit them with a bat. Right? That I don't know is understandable and reasonable and that's on the way to the relaxed, open, not knowing. And if you look at uh, children prior to, I don't know, seven, eight, Somewhere around nine or 10, that's when we start to really get the idea that idea sort of crystallizes in, in us that we're really supposed to know. You ever see like 10 or 11 year olds bossing around five or six year olds? That's really funny, usually acting just like their parents. 
you know, you should do it this way. And you're like, they're 11. How, how did this 11 year old become a micromanager all of a sudden? Right. Suddenly there's this switch that flips and suddenly they know how things ought to be. Whereas, you know, their little brother or sister at six or seven is just kind of like with whatever. Okay. If this is okay. That I have no idea how to do that. Okay. This is happening. Okay. And then something switches and that's the birth of control. And the light side of the birth of control is we need to be able to manage our lives. We need to be able to manage money. We need to be able to get to places on time. All that's really important. But because of our childhood and cultural conditioning, that wonder that we love so much in children, for most of us, goes out the window. And we have to relearn it as kids. That wonder, that awe. That's why we love kids so much. Because they're just... They're these open books. They're, they're just sponges for information. That's why they learn so fast. Did you know that you can learn nearly that fast as an adult? How do you do that? Not knowing. Because a kid is completely open to the, what they're learning changing them. They don't have a concretized identity or ego that will resist information or activity because it threatens who they think they are because they have no idea who they are. It's not even really something they think about. You know, ask a 25-year-old, well, tell me about yourself. They'll have all sorts of things to say. Ask a five-year-old, tell me about yourself. See what happens. (laughs) They probably won't even know how to answer the question. What do you mean, tell me about myself? This is it. They'll just be there. They'll just look at you funny. I'm just look, I'm being myself, right? I wouldn't say that, but that would be the sort of parenthetical implication. Right? So that wonder, that awe, that's what gets destroyed in us. And then we go on the rest of our lives, usually pretending all sorts of stuff about ourselves that isn't true. And that's exactly what gets us into trouble. So I posted on Slack, um, a couple, uh, a quote yesterday, I think. This one by Tolstoy. The most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he already knows without a shadow of a doubt what is laid before him. Even more simple, and one of my favorite quotes saying the exact same thing, often attributed to Mark Twain, but more likely this uh, guy named Josh Billings. It ain't, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And so in most education, but even more so in the business world, you'll see all of the human pursuit of answers, knowledge, improvement of skill, whatever they're endeavoring to learn so that they can change something, they come at it from what I would call a constructive approach or an additive approach. What new knowledge do I need? I have a problem. Our cash flow sucks or my employees won't listen or our quality isn't good enough or whatever it is. I'm fighting with my husband, wife, kids, whatever the problem is. Our default mode because of our educational conditioning is there must be something I don't know. That has a name. It's called the knowledge deficit model, and it's the basis of our entire education system. The knowledge deficit model basically says, 
whatever problem there is, it's because you're missing some knowledge. Now think about that for a second. Is that your experience in life? Is it your experience that the fights you have with your spouse end because you learn some piece of knowledge? (laughs) Rarely is that the case, right? It's not like you read a book and you go, oh, this factoid about women, men, sons, daughters, or whatever, thats they lure you with these kinds of things, right? And you see all the blogs in the blogosphere that say, five ways to blah, 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 and 10 tips to blah, blah, blah. They lure you with these, oh, it's simple, and it's just, if I read this, everything will change, does it? No, it doesn't. Now, I get it. It's a way to you know, meet people where they are and draw them into a deeper study, deeper conversation. Okay. I do it too in some ways, although I resist the urge to write five ways to blah, blah, blah. In fact, I wrote a really funny blog called Five Ways to Blah, Blah, Blah. Maybe some of you caught it a while back as a satire of that. So we're hooked in, because of our conditioning, we're hooked into, oh, give me that knowledge, you know, because knowing when the Magna Carta signed and, you know, all about the French Revolution, that totally set me up for a successful, happy life. So obviously, I need more information like that, or maybe just different information. But what you find out, usually by your late 20s at, at the latest, is that what's far more important than knowledge is your awareness, how you're paying attention, how you're managing yourself, what beliefs you have that are not true, your ability to look at yourself, your ability to take in data that your boss, your spouse, your PL, whatever it is, take in information and look at it and go, okay, this is what's true. It's different than what I thought. What do I do now? What do I do now? And all of us have had the experience of getting that information, negative cash flow, divorce papers, whatever it is. We've all had the experience of getting that information. And then sitting on our asses for years before we do something about it. We've all done that. And then life brings you another divorce or another negative cash flow month or another one of your best employees quitting or another getting fired or whatever. And then we sit on our asses again before we do something about it. But eventually we wake up because we go, hmm, I think there's some message here. Maybe I'm not as good at managing cash as I thought. Maybe I'm not as good as relating with women as I thought. Maybe I'm not nearly as good a father as I thought. Maybe I'm not as X as I Y. Right? And when that finally happens, life goes, yay! Now you can actually learn something. Meanwhile, you've been, you know, learning about, you know, reading blogs or whatever, trying to change it through knowledge, just like we were trained to but it doesn't work. Not to the degree we think. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that clear and open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, 
and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.